since chapter 12, we've been studying another cycle of, of seven signs, and today is the fifth sign. In chapters 12 to 15, these seven signs tell a story, and that story uh, stretches from Jesus' ascension in, into heaven, and it closes at Jesus' return. And we live in the middle of those two events, and these signs help us make sense of our present struggle and tribulation. Uh, as we saw in chapters 12 and 13, our struggle is one of cosmic war against Satan, the dragon, and together with the beast and the false prophet, they form an unholy alliance to destroy you. They use military power and political influence and false religion and economic pressure and worldly attractions and physical persecution all to pressure you to give up the fight of faith. But again and again, the Lord helps us choose endurance. And in Revelation, He does this through these, these glorious visions of Jesus' Lordship. And last week, it was Jesus claiming the high ground atop Mount Zion. He reigns and His followers reign with Him. So don't lose heart. Stay in the fight. Jesus is Lord. He will prevail. We come now to verses 6 to 13, and these verses also serve our endurance. In fact, verse 12 will call us to endurance explicitly. But the way these verses motivate our endurance is by developing the results of Jesus' lordship in relation to his enemies. If Jesus' kingdom will prevail, then all rebel powers must be destroyed. That's what today's passage is about. Judgment on the beast's kingdom should lead us to fear God and give him glory. Listen to God's word from verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, 
and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So you see three warnings, a call for endurance and a blessing. Three warnings, a call for endurance and a blessing. That's, that's where we're going. Our passage starts with these three warnings from, from angels. In warning number one, we learn that coming judgment demands a response. Coming judgment demands a response. In verse 6, John sees an angel over, overhead, and, and, and the picture is, is that he's high as the, the noonday sun. He's, he's a messenger, in other words, coming down from the heavenly places. And he has with him an eternal gospel. In the Old Testament, those who were victorious in battle uh, would would send messengers with good news of their triumph. And often, it appears with good news of God's triumph over His enemies. So in Isaiah 52, verse 7, for example, it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Well, in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus secured victory on Zion. And so it's fitting that, that God send a messenger from the, from the battlefront, so to speak, that we saw in chapter 12, with this news of Jesus' reign. And He has taken the hill. God's King has won. This is the good news. And it is also eternal in that... Jesus' victory is eternal. Jesus will reign forever. Also, the effects of Jesus' reign apply universally. Notice in verse 6, it says, for every, it's for every nation and tribe and language and people. So, so this gospel message is not one that's just true for you. No, Jesus' reign affects everyone. It is historical reality for everyone. Nobody can escape the effects of Jesus' lordship. If he is Lord, then judgment is inevitable for all who will not bow. Notice the urgency of the angel's message as well. Fear God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. And so Jesus' victory set in motion the final hour of God's judgment. That's what we've been seeing since chapter 5, verse 8, when he took the scroll and he started breaking each of the seals. And then we looked at the trumpets. All of this story in Revelation is about Jesus in his lordship, in his present reign, bringing all of history to its consummation. He is causing all of history to barrel towards a final judgment. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can escape it. Which means the gospel demands a response. 
from everyone. If Jesus is Lord, then everyone must, as it says here, fear God and give Him glory. To give God glory means you recognize His infinite worth in adoration and in your allegiance. To fear God means you stand in awe of His authority. You you submit to His word. Verse 7 also adds that everyone must worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, which isn't worship as we've seen in Revelation, isn't just about what you sing with your mouth, but what you do with your lives. These demands come in a context where the beast has deceived everyone into false worship. The beast has flexed his military and political power, and so people learn to fear him instead of fearing God, and what you fear, you obey. But the gospel demands that people fear God above all other fears and worship Him alone. Romans 1 says that people exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And the gospel is calling all people to forsake that way of living. Now, if judgment isn't coming, it doesn't matter. It's all just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if judgment is coming, and the resurrected and exalted Christ guarantees that it is, then you must fear God and give Him glory. Warning number two, the city of man will certainly fall. The city of man will certainly fall. In verse two, John sees a second angel, and he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, in Revelation, God divides the world into two cities. You have the city of God, New Jerusalem, and you have the city of man, which is Babylon. Historically, Babylon was a powerful empire. In the Old Testament, you know, you hear a lot about its king, Nebuchadnezzar. It was a pagan nation that God used at one point to judge his people. At the same time, Babylon was known for its pride the place in Isaiah where they, they even take God's name, I am, and there is no other besides me. See this pompous pride in, in Babylon? It's known for its rampant idolatry. They're offering sacrifices to Murdoch and Baal and, and all the rest. And it's known for its oppression of God's people. It's not like as, as God's instrument of judgment, they come in and, and nicely escort the people out to to, uh, to, to Babylon. No, they come in, they decimate the city, and they frolic over it like a calf skipping on the hills. That's the idea. They are, they are unjust in their oppression of God's people. And so for its idolatry and its pride and its oppression, God judges Babylon. He has Persia destroy Babylon in 539 B.C., But what's interesting is that after Babylon is is a nobody, they've been overturned. The prophets later pick up Babylon. And they talk about coming out of Babylon and don't get involved with Babylon. Babylon has become, at that point in history, a code word for any proud, idolatrous nation that oppresses God's people. 
And that's how John is using it here. In fact, listen to its further description in chapter 17 of Revelation. If you want to turn there briefly, chapter 17, verse 3, John describes Babylon this way. He says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it, was, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup, a golden cup, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so we're seeing here a city that opposes God and hates God's people. Chapter 14, verse 8. If we go back there, we saw that she made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we've discussed this before, but in Revelation, sexual immorality isn't limited to sexual activity. It's more so a symbol for spiritual harlotry. It pictures someone abandoning her covenant husband to run around with other lovers, other false gods, which may include sexual activity. But the point is broader. Babylon leads the nations, in other words, to cheat on the Lord with false gods of all sorts. And the nations, the picture here is that the nations have been drinking from her cup and they are wasted. They are drunk with harlotry. But notice, Jesus' victory means that this city of man is guaranteed to fall. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9. Isaiah 21, verse 9, where you get this picture of a watchman who's, who's looking over the horizon for pending judgment from an enemy and and he starts to see the the riders and on their horses he he starts to see them crest the horizon and he stands and says fallen fallen is babylon the great even before it's happened he sees them coming and announces their doom So he's describing a future reality from a distance as if it's already happened. And the point was to convey the certainty of their downfall. And the same is happening here. It's as if John has been given those eyes. It's as if John is functioning as a watchman and he's looking over the horizon and he sees Jesus coming and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. The enthronement of Jesus means the downfall of Babylon. And so certain is the downfall of Babylon, this angel can announce it like it's already happened. Warning number three. Eternal punishment awaits the beast's followers. Eternal punishment awaits the beast's followers. A third angel follows in verse 9, and he announces a judgment for those who worship the beast and its 
image and receive the beast's mark. In chapter 13, verse 16, we, we discussed this mark. It's a spiritual mark evidenced by who you serve and worship. So those who belong to the beast, they serve and worship idols. Whatever compromise gives them the best life now, they do it. If the beast opposes Christians, they do it to save face and keep their jobs. In other words, these people are not innocent. They have an insatiable craving for Babylon's idolatry, and they join the beast in persecuting the church. And for these people, God promises terrible judgment. They must drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, drinking from God's cup was a metaphor for suffering under God's wrath. The cup was, uh, was held in God's right hand to illustrate his absolute rule and power. But when people despise God's rule and power, well, then, then that cup was depicted as full of God's fierce judgment. And, and he would, the picture, the images of him pouring out that cup. And, that's, and that was a sign of him enacting his judgment on earth. And, and it's not like you had the option whether to drink or not. No, he forced everyone to drink it down, to gulp it down to the point of staggering disillusion and utter despair. But here's the thing. When God forced nations to drink the wine of his wrath, it was diluted. It was mixed. It wasn't as strong as it could be. It included only temporary judgments. Those temporary judgments of old were pointers to the far greater judgment to come. That's why verse 10 says that the wine will be pulled, will be poured full strength. In other words, undiluted into the cup of his anger. To this point in history, all of God's judgments have been diluted. The flood, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt, the ground swallowing Korah, the fall of Jericho, the curses on Israel, the siege of Jerusalem where they're having to eat each other's flesh to survive, the exile, the famines, God handing people over right now to their own devices, according to Romans 1. The seal judgments in Revelation, the trumpets, all of them are diluted judgments. But at the end, God's wrath is undiluted. It will come in full strength. God's judgment will also be fierce. Notice in verse 10, 
he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Fire and sulfur often appear in context of judgment in the Old Testament. Think Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. Only worse, it is a sign of agonizing despair. Your mind is tormented with an overwhelming sense of loss, and there's no way to reverse the damage. Later, these images will describe the lake of fire, which is the destiny of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. So what John is communicating is that if you align yourself with this unholy alliance, you will share also in their destiny in the lake of fire. You will share in their torments. Now, people are sometimes confused by the phrase, in the presence of the Lamb. Because 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And so which is it? Well, some will say that Paul means the Lord's face, meaning his, his, uh, his happy countenance that he lifts upon you. So he's present to judge, but his enemies will be away from his favorable countenance. But it could also be a translation issue, which the ESV tells us about in a footnote in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. The idea isn't that punishment is away from the Lord's presence, but that it's from the Lord's presence, meaning he is the source of the judgment which is exactly what Revelation 14.10 pictures. God's judgment is also forever. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That comes from Isaiah chapter 34, verses 9 and 10. Edom was God's enemy, but the Lord punished them the same way he punished Sodom and Gomorrah. When the Lord was finished, people outside the city would be able to pass by and see the smoke rising over the city as a memorial to their judgment. Only here, again, that was diluted. Here it's worse. It's undiluted. There's ongoing torment. Never will they get to experience the sweet rest of God's Sabbath. These enemies have no rest day or night. They will be in a constant state of utter despair and exhaustion. Now those are the three warnings. And we could stop there and tease out these warnings for for those who don't know the Lord But I first want, to re- want you to recall that the Lord gave this prophecy to believers. It's written to the seven churches that are in Asia. So it functions a lot like the oracles against the nations do in the Old Testament when they were written for Israel. That's why he shifts next to a call for believers to endure 
a call for believers to endure. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, we talked about this before, that endurance has to do with this long-standing obedience in the face of opposition, in the face of trial, but that obedience then comes by faith in Jesus. So Jesus remains the, the object of our trust and the giver of our strength. But why is this call for endurance located here? in chapters 12 to 14, in, this, in these seven signs. Why is it here? Because while you are fighting the war of chapters 12 and 13, you're supposed to keep these two images of chapter 14 in front of you, right? In verses 1 to 5... You see the destiny of God's people. They are reigning with the Lamb. And in verses 6 to 13, you see the destiny of the beast and his followers. And so while you're you're fighting this fight against the dragon and against the beast and against the false prophet in this age, you're supposed to keep these two pictures before you, the reign of Jesus with his followers and then the destiny of those who follow The beast and those two two signs are supposed to help you in the fight of faith. So, for those saints who are getting comfy in Babylon, which was Rome of John's day, America isn't too far behind, morally speaking. This vision says... Don't get comfortable there. Don't do it. Resist the worldly attractions. 80 years of luxurious living in Babylon isn't worth an eternity of torments. That's what this message conveys to a church like Laodicea who's getting comfy in Babylon. And maybe other saints, as they are experiencing the pressure from the beast and they are seeing how powerful he is. He starts threatening them to recant. And they start entertaining that. Maybe I will. What's the point of enduring? And this vision comes in for those and says, Fear God, not man. The beast kingdom is going down. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Don't fear those who can only destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then other Christians would be faithful, right? Laying down their lives, suffering unjust imprisonment and torture. Maybe others don't suffer as much but they stay true to God's word. They do their work faithfully and quietly. They weep over the wicked prospering, saying, How long, O Lord? And this vision comes in to reassure them, Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will judge your enemies. He will put an end to all evildoers. And so it speaks to Christians in a number of ways who are in a variety of different places. 
So wherever you are, Christian, endure. That's how the call here functions in this larger context of these seven signs. Now, choosing endurance is going to cost you, and it may even cost your life. The Lord knows that, which is why He leaves the people with a blessing from the Holy Spirit. A blessing from the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, I love this about the Lord. He's not just calling you to do hard things and to endure. He is giving you the assurance of rest beyond the grave. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Notice the phrase, Die in the Lord. In John's writings, the opposite of dying in the Lord is dying in your sins. Dying in your sins means dying guilty under God's wrath without rest or escape. We read about that in verses 9 to 11. Dying in the Lord means that all of the saving benefits of Jesus' death have been applied to you. You now belong to Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross has freed you from your sins. Jesus' death on the cross has canceled your guilt and removed it. Jesus' death on the cross has cleansed you from every stain. God's wrath has been satisfied for you, and you will enter God's rest. The blessing of verse 13 is eternal rest. Your faithfulness to Jesus will give way to the reward of rest in Jesus' presence. Every ounce of energy spent for the kingdom, every sacrifice that you have endured for the Lamb, every heartache in the path of compassion for your enemies, it will give way to rest and reward in Jesus' presence. We have three warnings, a call for endurance, and a blessing. That's the vision. Now, what do we do with it? What do we do with a vision like this? One is fear God and give Him glory. It's pretty straightforward here. Fear God and give Him glory. In his book, The Joy of Fearing God, Jerry Bridges writes this. There was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. This was a badge of honor. But somewhere along the way, we lost it. Now the idea of fearing God, if thought of at all, seems like a relic from the past. And I want to say that shouldn't be. The Scriptures call all creation to fear God, meaning that we behold Him with reverential awe. If you read the book of Acts as the gospel is spreading and getting massaged into the life of the church and God is doing many signs and wonders, what are two things you see repeated in Acts that the church enjoyed? The joy of the Holy Spirit and the fear of God. Both of those things 
were present in the church. And it must be the same today. That's harder to do in our culture, as David Wells has observed Since the 1960s, our culture has exited the moral world in which God was transcendent and holy, and we have entered a new psychological world in which God is only imminent and loving. But Revelation challenges us not to reduce God's character to those things we find more palatable. God is wholly other in majesty. He will hold the world accountable. Because of Jesus' victory, the hour of His judgment is coming. It's just over the horizon. God will reveal the fullness of His presence. And it will be glorious. And it will be terrible. The only appropriate response is to repent and give God glory with your exclusive worship. Number two, don't settle in Babylon. Don't settle in Babylon. Babylon doesn't have a geographical location. It symbolizes the whole system of evil that opposes God and oppresses God's people. Now, we'll learn more about Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. For now, it's enough to say that Babylon is a lot like Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. And if you ask some of the older generation in our church, I mean, if, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress and you ask some of the older generation in our church, uh, they'd probably say, you're not converted yet. <laughs> read Pilgrim's Progress. As the story goes, the the town of Vanity, they hosted this perpetual year-long fair, right? And it was filled with, with all sorts of houses and lands and riches and delights and, and lusts and pleasures and games of all sorts and adulteries. And all of it was strategically designed by Beelzebul to, uh, uh, to distract people from the heavenly Jerusalem. It was on the way to the celestial city. And it was meant to distract you from getting there. Well, at some point, Faithful and Christian, these two characters, they pass through Vanity Fair, and they don't look like the rest of the people. Instead, Faithful and Christian, they look more like sojourners passing through. And the people can tell this by the clothes they wear. They didn't speak like the world either. They they spoke true things. And they also packed really lightly as if traveling to a far better country. And the people of Vanity Fair try to get them to compromise. But neither faithful or Christian would compromise. And what happens is it gets them imprisoned. And not long after that, Faithful is tortured and he's burned at the stake. All because he wouldn't settle at Vanity Fair. He wouldn't compromise the truth and his heart belonged 
to the new Jerusalem. And that illustrates what we must be like in the face of Babylon's distractions. Babylon may look powerful and attractive and even fun. But we must continue to remember that it is fallen. It is doomed. So keep passing through like a good sojourner and keep your sights and your heart on the new Jerusalem. Three, uphold the Bible's teaching on eternal punishment. Uphold the Bible's teaching on eternal punishment. Eternal punishment is among Christianity's most offensive teachings. And in some cases, that's because people won't accept anything less than a God who is morally permissive. In their minds, God is loving to the degree that He lets them do whatever they want. The major problem there is defining love around the self. But the Scriptures continually define love around God. God is love, and His love always upholds what is holy and judges and destroys what is evil. In other cases, eternal punishment offends because they misunderstand the sinful state of those being judged. They envision this scene of God tormenting people who are crying out for mercy, who who are begging repeatedly for forgiveness. But this is not true, and it's not the way the Bible depicts those suffering torment. Those who suffer punishment remain enslaved to their sins. They will forever hate God. They will gnash their teeth at Him in anger. And in that sense, God is handing them over to what they want. Others struggle with eternal punishment, though, because it seems unfair. How is it fair, they might ask, that there be an eternity of punishment for a finite number of sins? It seems disproportionate. But as others have pointed out well, degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. The issue isn't the amount of sin, but the nature of sin itself. Sin is an insurrection that rejects the character, authority, and power of God. Our blame is measured against the infinite worth and holiness of the Creator Lord. I'm not saying the doctrine of eternal punishment is easy to accept. There are aspects about hell that are difficult to comprehend on this side of Jesus' return, and we'll get to some of them later in Revelation when you see the saints praising God for His judgments. It's hardly a teaching that we should embrace without great sorrow for those still outside of Christ. 
But like other hard teachings in Scripture, we must submit ourselves to God's Word. It is what our Lord Jesus Himself taught about punishment. And we are a people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Something else to add, though, is this. If people truly grasped the splendor of God's holiness and the heinousness of their sins, we wouldn't question eternal punishment. We'd be asking why this God chooses to save anybody from it. That's where I want to go next. Give thanks for the Lamb whose cross delivers from eternal punishment. Give thanks to the Lamb whose cross delivers from eternal punishment. What's striking is that people object to God punishing the guilty in hell, but they have hardly a problem with God punishing the only innocent one at the cross. That's the greater conundrum. Jesus, the infinite infinitely worthy one who, is in, who has intrinsic perfection takes on a punishment he didn't deserve to save scoundrels from the punishment we did deserve. But as Scripture tells us in Romans, far from undermining God's justice in doing so, the cross of Christ establishes it. In His gracious plan to save the guilty, God punished your sins in Jesus. That makes God just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In your place, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you could come today and drink from the cup of His blessing. The blessing of His forgiveness. The blessing of His propitiation, which means there's no more wrath left for you. The blessing of fellowship with God and the Holy Spirit. So give thanks, beloved, for the Lord's saving grace in the cross. Rejoice in the redeeming work of the Lamb. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Announce this gospel far and wide. One of the things we stress in Membership Matters, are motives for evangelism. God is worthy of worship. That's one motive. Another motive is our union with Jesus in mission. But a third is compassion for those who are still sitting in darkness. Compassion for those who are outside of Christ. We can't just uphold the doctrine of eternal punishment. That doctrine must increase not only our love for the cross, but it must increase our compassion for the lost. So seek them and save them as the Son of Man came to seek and save us. And then lastly, take courage that rest awaits those who die in the Lord. Rest awaits those who die in the Lord. Don't forget that Revelation is written to persecuted Christians. Some had already been killed, and the people are grieving and mourning their deaths. Others would soon face death themselves. We saw that in chapter 2. 
And yet the Spirit's blessing here extends not just to those who might be facing martyrdom, it extends to all who die in the Lord from now on. In the last few weeks, I've spoken to a couple of people in our own church about death. With age and and health complications, perhaps you feel your own death drawing near. It's caused in you more sober reflection on life in recent days. And I hope that today you can take great comfort in a blessing like this from the Holy Spirit. God is speaking in His Word to you. Blessed are you who die in the Lord, that you may rest from your labors. A day is coming when you will no longer have to strive against the relentless temptations of this age. All the burdening effects of the fall will be lifted and you will know the reward of your Savior's face. Death will not separate you from Christ, but enable you to know Him more and further. It won't yet be the final state of resurrection, but it will be an immediate rest in the reward of Christ's presence. You will be like those coming out of the great tribulation in chapter 7, verse 13, where you will hunger no more and you will thirst no more because the Lamb who is on the throne will lead you to the springs of the living water. The Lamb will be your shepherd there and He will guide you to these springs and His Father will wipe every one of your tears away. I love the story of Andrew Fuller. Fuller was a pastor for 40 years and helped found the Baptist Missionary Society. But one of the texts that he loved to preach was this one, at funerals. During his last dying hours, this text came to his aid as well. He was in much physical anguish, but there's a man named Mr. Blundell who recalls Fuller saying this. My hope is such that I am not afraid to plunge into eternity. And I hope this blessing gives you all the same confidence. To plunge into eternity without fear and filled with the assurance that in Christ you will have rest. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your promise from the Holy Spirit to give us rest in the presence of Jesus. I ask that this promise will be brought to our mind, to our memories often, that it may prepare us to die well, whether that be in the path of suffering and persecution and martyrdom or just in the various things you call us to be faithful to until you take us home. Lord, minister these words to us. And until that day comes for us, make us faithful to proclaim the cross to those in need. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.